Welcome back to Into the Current. I'm Kendrick Dish, joined by Eric Rogers. We are the two co-founders of Vertical River, a content marketing agency in Atlanta. And this is our podcast where we talk to interesting people about current events, conservation, marketing, business, culture, things that are interesting. Uh, Eric, welcome back to the podcast. How was your weekend? You just got back from a pretty exciting adventure. Yeah, yeah, we went to this this really cool town um, on the coast in South Carolina. It's called McClellanville. It's an old shrimping and fishing village, and we go there uh, every October for a fishing tournament. It's a charity tournament for their local school. It's called the JMT Creek Slam Tournament, and so uh, I take my son Sam and I fish in the tournament, and uh, the whole family went, and Sam um, caught the two biggest fish out of our boat, boat 41. And I think he caught the second biggest flounder in the youth angler division is very exciting because he caught the fish with 10 minutes to go in the tournament. So you have to be into the uh, weigh in area by 5 PM. And he literally pulled the fish in the boat at 4:50, and uh, we just snuck in right under the wire. And it was very exciting. Uh, oh, you know, last second catch there by Sam. So he's excited. We're all excited. He didn't holler. And it's, it's great to be in McClellanville. We get some really cool pictures that I'll be putting up, um, on Instagram. So check us out. And, uh, I did, I did put up a sunrise picture on, uh, vertical rivers, Instagram feeds. You can check that out. So this beautiful sunrise uh, Saturday morning. So it was great, but a little bit, uh, a little bit dicier here in Atlanta while we were gone. I heard how, uh, how to go here, Kendrick. I heard we had some weather. Yeah, we had uh, quite a bit of rain on Saturday night. And in fact, um, you know, I've been battling a little bit of, of moisture coming into the basement. And this time it wasn't just moisture. It was an entire flood in the basement down here. And um, a couple of inches of water were coming in on the low side. And it caused uh, caused some damage. I'm going to have to redo the floors here in the studio. Um, it's not going to be fun, but this time I'm going to use a different flooring material. Um and so, yeah, the, you know, our, our backyard is on a hill and the water flows, uh, down and it's got some drains, but those drains were full. And then there's some, some other things going on that we're going to have to take care of. And, you know, it's just one of those things with water. It's a tough, it's a tough thing to manage. Um, and luckily, uh, there's people who know how to manage water. <laughs> our guest, Hannah, Hannah Palmer is one of those people. Uh, she is a, uh, a writer and she's an urban planner, and she's the author of Flight Path, a Search for Roots Beneath the World's Busiest Airport, which I've read and is a fantastic, fantastic book about uh, her, her, her process for revisiting her old childhood homes that have all been destroyed, and they were all by the airport. So the airport's expansion caused um, some, some, some houses to get torn down, and so she went on a journey to figure that out and, and documented it in this book, and it's just a, a very interesting read, especially if you're in Atlanta. She's also a big part of the Finding the Flint initiative. And we, during this interview, we'll, we dive into both of those things quite a bit more. Um, but Hannah's also a mother to two handsome young boys. And she happens to be married to one of my, probably my funniest friend, uh, Jason Palmer. And he makes a few fun cameos in her book as well. Um, but I'll tell you, it's, it was a real pleasure to have Hannah join us. And uh, I look forward to sharing it with you guys. Yeah, Hannah's an awesome guest. Um, we get to talk to her about some urban planning issues and how 
water conservation goes into that and, and the value of, of nature, right? And, and reconnecting people in urban landscapes with nature, which is something that, you know, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, a huge advocate for environmental conservation as, as are you and our company. And so it was really interesting just to talk to somebody who, um, is very, very involved in that here in our city and somebody who's a native Atlantan too. You know, we talk about that, uh, too, in the growth of this city. So it's just really great conversation with Hannah. It was awesome to talk to her and, uh, I think everybody's going to love it. All right, well, let's, let's, let's just roll it. Here we go. Hannah Palmer, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for the invitation. It's fun to be here. Uh, obviously, it's it's kind of a, a, a an unusual period of time right now. The pandemic is going on. Um, how is the pandemic affecting you and your family? You got two two boys in school age. How, what what are you guys doing? Well, three of the four of us are stuck at home all day, and that is it's frustrating and sometimes annoying. Um, my older son who's nine does go to school in person every day. And my younger son who's seven is doing virtual school and we all kind of hate virtual school. It's, uh, it's fine. It's, it's safe. Um, he's learning what he needs to learn as a second grader, but it's just tough uh, socially and emotionally. It's and logistically it's tough for us all to be stuck at home. Um, my husband works from home. He's upstairs all day. I work from home in my little corner here um, as much as I can, kind of around the boys. But I I worked from home for several years prior to the pandemic. And this is just very different, <laughs> very different because now I'm sort of managing homeschool stuff. And um, I don't have my time and space to really focus and think like I did before because I'm interrupted all the time. So we're fine. We're making it. Now we're six months in, though. It's uh, We're weary. And uh, we're starting to just try to figure out ways to, like, get away or create space for certain projects. Because when we're all just crammed in this little house all day, it's, um, it's just, like, it's just stressful. It's tough. Um, but other than the, you know, that kind of annoyance and inconvenience, we're healthy. Uh, we're still employed. The kids hopefully are getting what they need. So we try to just count our blessings and uh, think of this as like, it is temporary. It's not always going to be this way. And as much as possible, try to think about the benefits of, of this really different, slow uh, time to kind of reset, reflect. We've definitely changed our lifestyle a lot. Um, we have dinner together every night as a family. That did not happen before. We were just too busy. We had too much, you know, soccer practice, and I was doing book events a lot. And so having evenings together every night, I I love it. Um, yeah, you can you can definitely count the benefits along with the um, stressful <laughs> part. Have you been Have you been more inspired or productive, or less inspired or productive? I think I think it's about the same. Um, I'm. What's happening with our, you know, how culture has shifted because of the pandemic is fascinating to me. Um, I've been journaling a lot and just kind of writing about how things are changing and what I'm learning. And it's definitely feeling like um, a time in my life where I'm learning a lot rapidly uh, every day. So that's, that is a ripe time and a lot of material for writing. 
the frustrating part is I hardly ever have solitude to write. And you really have to have unbroken solitude to be to do any writing and to be creative. Um, so I'm often frustrated, like I'm piling up material and journaling and just having to go away for a weekend to a friend's cabin or something if I actually want to be productive and like turn that material into some writing. Um, honestly, though, that's kind of what it is like having kids. Just you have to fight to protect your solitude and creative time. Um, so it's not that different um, with the pandemic. Um, I feel I feel inspired all the time. I'm I'm like dreaming up ideas and thinking of stuff a lot. It's just hard uh, to protect some time to turn it into writing. Do you have have you developed any hacks or tricks to to protect that time? Any secrets that you want to share? <laughs> anything at the, anything at all that might help some people? Like, yeah, I, and I really do think about uh, the way that I wrote before I had kids. I mean, I was always busy and active and had to protect that time, but it was easy for me before I had kids to like drink some coffee and stay up till three a.m. writing uninterrupted because nobody was emailing me or um, you know, there's no interruptions in the middle of the night and I'm caffeinated and, you know, caffeine is the only drug that I actually tap into because, you know, you're, you're kind of like uncensored and you can just like get that first draft done. Um, I can't do that so much now that I'm responsible for kids who wake me up every day consistently at 6am and have a long list of detailed record, you know, needs. <laughs> so, um, what I've started doing and is, uh, applying for residencies and I've done a handful of residencies now where I literally go away for two weeks at a time. And I, that's on the calendar. That's scheduled and protected time. That, And I will arrange for childcare. I will arrange to be off work. And during that time that is set aside for working on a draft or I have a certain set of goals, I am super productive because I recognize the sacrifice now to be away from home and off work. Um, so residencies, and then you don't have to apply necessarily for, you know, official residency. You can create your own. And I've done that several times too, where I just um, ask for, a fr you know, a friend's out of town and I will volunteer to house it and just get out of my little bubble, my space. And it's not just for like two or three hours. It's for like eight to 10 hours because you're, you're going to be in a different space. You're not going to be thinking about, um, the long list of things your kid needs or the laundry that is piled up in the corner. You really are setting aside time and space to just focus on the writing. So when I do that, um, I'm usually like very, very productive because that time is uninterrupted. So it, it feels, especially as a mom, you at first have some guilt about taking time away but it's so um, rewarding. It's so satisfying. Your kids are fine. Mom is happier. It's like, you know, we're trying to multitask all the time and like profound creativity doesn't come out of multitasking. I think you really have to single task and you really have to like put it on the calendar, plan for it and unapologetically um, turn off your email turn off Twitter. I mean, I get offline completely because there's too many even distractions when you start doing research. So those are my hacks. Yeah. Unplug the internet and escape to the woods. <laughs> that sounds tough on the, on, on the husband for, <laughs> that sounds tough on husband. You go away for two weeks and he's got to 
handle it? Is that, well, does he? The, the, it's a negotiation for sure. And I do my best to make sure that he's got support when I'm away. The kids are not in diapers anymore. So this isn't a, yeah. yeah. it's not quite as hard as it would have been five years ago. But I'll tell you, Kendrick, uh, Jason, whenever I take a break, he has permission to also schedule his own breaks. And he does that too. He's, my husband's a, a painter. I mean, his his work is in video production, which is how we met Kendrick. But he also oil paints, so he can take, you know, schedule a week off to go book a studio somewhere and just paint. And, he, and I'm telling you, like, these se- separate vacations are kind of the secret <laughs> to marriage. I've actually heard that before. I've heard that before. <laughs> um, and I've, I, I did. No, that's a great one. I did see on his Instagram that he did get away and do some painting. And it's always nice to see. And he's he's an awesome painter. Um, but this podcast is not about him. So, uh, you know, still on the topic of the pandemic, we put your urban urban designer hat on for a second and, and, and go bigger picture and tell us, you know, kind of your hypothesis on how this pandemic is going to impact our cities and our, and our culture and, and the future of our work and, and, you know, anything that you've it's going on up here that you think might be, of, uh, you know, changing or of interest. It's a big question, I know. Well, I'm like I'm like you. I think about these questions a lot. I'm looking for patterns and trends. It's hard to forecast um, because I don't think we're ever going to go quite back to the same normal we were at before. Um, but in, in some ways, business is going to resume. Um, school will resume. Life will get back to some form of normal. Um, I was talking about this yesterday with a friend who left the old fourth ward. They moved to Noonan, moved to a suburban uh, house with more space um, because suddenly raising kids in a small apartment uh, when you can't get out and enjoy public space, when you can't get out to school or work is kind of a nightmare. Um, And those moves are not temporary. A lot of people who are leaving small in town living for suburban households Um, they're going to stay. However, I kind of think that eventually they would have done that anyways. You know, that, that, that was like, you know, part of the normal sort of pattern of migration within the city. Um, some things that I don't think will go back to normal. Um, I, I personally don't think we'll go back to normal to, um, flying as much as we used to. I used to fly five or six times a year just for, you know, to go to a conference or to go to, um, you know, see a friend, to go to a wedding. Um, and now I'm going to really think hard about, you know, getting on a plane, traveling, going to a conference, being part, you know, traveling for a, a concert, you know, I really have to think about the risks and the benefits of doing that. And that is going to, a lot of us, you know, are going to do that for years. doesn't mean we won't travel anymore or won't go to concerts or won't, but we're really going to like pick um, the ones that we really can't miss, the weddings we absolutely want to be at, the conferences that we would absolutely cannot do virtually. Um, just the that freedom is is going to, I mean, we're all kind of traumatized by this and the fear of it. And uh, we're going to have to think differently about risks. Um, that is the amount of like just driving to work, driving to school that's really reduced right now. You know, the um, we're all learning that we can do stuff virtual that we didn't know we could do or we didn't believe was possible. Now we we actually, can, yeah, grandma can get on Skype. Um, 
the the book club can happen virtually. I mean, literally before we absolutely thought, no way, it's not going to work. Uh, so we're learning and, you know, particularly work from home is not going to go, I mean, it's not going to go back to the way it used to be. I think this time has proven how much work can be done from home. And I think that's not going to, we're not going to go back to all being in offices 40 hours a week when this is over. Um, I think I've heard some forecasts that like, um, that in the future, three days a week, we will be working from home, that those days in the office are going to be very strategic, uh, necessary. And, you know, that, that's not, that's all good for the environment. That's all good for, um, you know, carbon and climate change, uh, the flying less, driving less, uh, using less space. I'm optimistic that this pause in business as usual, this disruption is, uh, you know, going to change habits in ways that are, that benefit the planet. Um, but I don't kid myself to thinking we're all going to just stay home forever. And uh, yeah, already that's kind of showing that there's only some of us who have that privilege to just park it at home. So I don't know. I mean, it's, I think a lot about Atlanta and how the pandemic might affect Atlanta. And once again, I'm seeing that, like, I don't understand real estate. It's just baffling to me that, like, real estate is hotter than ever in the pandemic. People are buying, um, you know, homes in the suburbs, homes in the city. There's not, there's not like one section that's sort of uh, flagging or lagging behind. People are buying second homes and the vacation market is like crazy busy. Um, so I, I guess I'm not in the terms of like real estate, and how the city is shaped. I, I don't know. It feels like the pandemic is sort of like uh, forcing people to rethink their lifestyle choices and make some commitments. Um, I'm seeing houses sell around me in East Point in like a matter of days. And I think it's because you can have a yard. <laughs> um, but it, again, like these moves, I, I don't know that they're like indicative of long term trends. I think we're going to eventually get back to more or less normal. It's just not going to be the same amount of like driving to work as it was before. And flying to every possible, you know, fun thing that we used to. Um, I, and I'm going to be wearing a mask for a long time. And my children are going to be wearing masks for a long time. I think that they work. And it's going to be a long time before I'm in an indoor crowded situation without a mask on. Um, I, I heard one company offer their employees a pay cut if they moved somewhere else. If they move, if they took remote and moved out of state or moved not it wasn't necessarily out of state but it was out of it was out of san francisco um and they got like a one-time bonus and they took a pay cut and they were able to move somewhere else and so that was the first and only time i've heard of that particular scenario but it's an interesting idea that people would uh the companies would be discouraging people from living close to their company and encouraging them to take take advantage of remote work and uh, then they can pay people less. Mm -hmm. I don't know which company that was. They, it was a, it was, it was a, you know, comment on it on the internet. <laughs> so who knows if it's yeah. true? Or not, but I, I read it, so it must be. And then, did you see that like Mailchimp is completely moving and redesigning their office? I haven't heard about that. Uh, they're leaving Pont City Market. They're completely redesigning their office based on the fact that so many of their employees can and will be working from home in the future, and. That's a big example, and I don't think they're changing people's pay structure or anything um, because they are busy as ever um, doing email marketing. But that's that's just an interesting story to me that for years we've 
design these workspaces based on the idea that like, we're all going to work better and be more productive if we're all in the same place collaborating constantly. Well, it turns out we can do a lot of this from home. It's not ideal, but it changes our, our needs in terms of like, you know, leases. Uh, these are very expensive real estate shifts that are, that are happening. And um, I, I think overall, like it's good for employers to recognize that like our lives and livelihood don't depend on the kind of office environment that they invest in. It's more about people and their skills and their potential. On a similar note, I have heard uh, that that a lot of companies are it, when they when they do come back together, their this open office concept is probably going away just because it's so transmissive of of, <laughs> of the things that yeah. we need to avoid. So like putting and nobody walls really back up, liked it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a good cover for what the real reason. Secretly. Secretly, we all kind of hated it because we couldn't concentrate mm -hmm. and yeah, it's loud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I always liked, you know, whenever I did have an office, it was so much better than having open, open air. But, um, all right. So, you know, your book, let's talk about your book for a second. This book, Flight Path. The Search for Roots Beneath the World's Busiest Airport. This this is a phenomenal book. You've done a fantastic job with this. Um, I read it in just a few short days. It's super entertaining. It's extremely witty and it's funny in some way. Your writing is funny. The story, some of the stories, it's it's poignant and sad, but um, but you do a f remarkable job in telling the story. Can you give your version of a recap of this for people who aren't familiar with? Um, what this is and, and the importance of it. Yeah, thank you. I love hearing that you found parts of it funny. It is sort of a sad story and um, it's a it's a memoir. So it's a personal journey. I'm sort of trying to understand the landscape where I grew up. Um, I'm from Clayton County, Georgia, which is right next to Hartsville-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, the busiest airport in the world. And I was growing up in the early 80s at the same time that the airport was expanding to become this massive airport that we all have experienced today. So grow, it's about growing up with the airport because each time the airport would expanded, it, it cut into neighborhoods, it cut into um, the places where I lived and eventually completely erased the city where I'm from. And um, I started just sort of writing a personal story about like, um, all my lost houses. At some point, I recognized that every house that I'd ever lived in as a child was gone, and more or less because it was in the immediate airport area. So in just the sort of process of trying to figure out what happened to those houses, and I also started thinking about what happened to my family. There's a lot of questions about my parents' divorce and um, how my family sort of scattered um, but I started digging in and becoming a little investigator and learned that what happened to my house happened to thousands of homes and huge sections of South Side neighborhoods, parts of uh, not just Forest Park and Mountain View, but also Hapeville, College Park, Riverdale, uh, that were wiped off the map um, for the expanding airport. So it turns out it's like a personal story. It's a memoir. There's a lot about, you know, thinking about home and um raising a family and what it means to try to live in Atlanta. But then it's also a, a piece of Atlanta history that hadn't been told yet about the cost of developing this airport right on top of historic communities. 
uh, how they were displaced and sort of erased. And nobody had ever written about that or talked about what it took um, culturally, financially, like it, what it took to build the world's busiest airport right inside the perimeter. The synopsis. <laughs> Uh, it is a per. I mean, it's it's a very personal. It, it it's very personal, and um, it, it 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 was super interesting to me because I know you and I knew some of the other characters that were mentioned, um, and and so it was just weird to hear stories I've heard from Jason told from your point of view. That was interesting, but it's very personal, and I want to I want to read one sentence from this book that that kind of illustrates where it's headed from a personal nature and and just it's it's a it's a wonderful hook on the first page it's actually the first sentence of the book itself and so i'm just reading this out loud to kind of hook everybody so that they may they may want to read this book too. buy my book yeah so despite protests from the kirkwood neighbors organization and bad press in the local paper they bulldozed the house where i lost my virginity and and it goes on from there um, to talk about true story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the whole thing is it's and, and the, the whole thing is a true story of your of your exploration and and you weave such a uh, an interesting quilt of like personal with historic and and urban planning and and it's just really remarkable. I think um, and I can't wait to read whatever you do next. So we'll talk about what you're doing next later on, but. When you wrote this and it was personal and other people's personal ideas and stories were coming out, did you get any pushback or did you have any consequences of, of revealing personal ideas and personal thoughts? And, and did you share the manuscript with people ahead of time just to get their take and permission and, and stuff like that? Did you worry about that at all? Yes. Yes to all those questions. It's really complicated to write a memoir when you're, 20, I think I read it when I was like 27 years old and all these people are living and, um, it, it's still complicated. Like that first line about, uh, they bulldozed the house where I lost my virginity. I can't imagine that my parents and grandparents and, you know, certain people, adults in my life want to want to think about that at all. It probably makes them very uneasy. Um, I would say, first of all, that I wrote the book trying not to think about what's mom going to think, what's dad going to think. Um, you know, I tried to write without censoring myself and just write the book that I found interesting, entertaining, the book I felt needed to exist in the world. Um, but I also know how to tell a good story. And I know that including a bit about your personal life, being vulnerable, being willing to tell your secrets, um, you know, to a certain extent, there's, there's a lot of curating going on is what makes a juicy story that makes people turn the pages. So in the story of the development of the Atlanta airport, you're going to see me get pregnant. You're going to see me give birth. There's all this personal stuff going on. And I know that keeps people asking what happens next, you know, and like wanting to know more about like what I'm confessing or revealing. So part of that is just good storytelling but yeah, as I got to the end and it occurred to me that this was going to be out in the world, I thought, first of all, I'm crazy uh, to you know, put myself out there. Um, some part of me looks at it as like a character that I developed through the writing of the memoir. And uh, by the time it was published, it was almost like 10 years later. So I was already like a mother of two. And you know, there's not any um, really juicy 
trauma or scandal about my family that is revealed. My parents got a divorce. That's about a, as common of a you know family scandal as you can imagine. Um, I did let my husband read it every step of the way. Anything, and he's so supportive. I don't think there was a single thing in the book that he asked me to tone down or not mention. He's always kind of like, yeah, <laughs> that's your art, babe. He's really supportive. And then I let my mom read it early on, the full draft, because she she features as a complicated character in the book. Um, and she was super supportive too. It's same reason. She just looked at it as like, Hannah, that's your truth. That's your art. Um, she didn't ask for a single change. In fact, she probably um, gave me more information and helped me get some of the facts straight. Um, it's memoir. So it's very, you know, it's my personal thoughts and memory. It's not everybody's truth. It's my truth. Um, but I did want to get the facts right. I didn't want to get the years wrong or the, you know, particularly all the stuff, the research I did about the airport. I wanted that to be, you know, um, I want to be authoritative about that information. So a number of readers who were not in my family, you know, were reading and reviewing and helping me make sure that I was consistent and getting the facts right. Um, it wasn't until right before publication that I let most of my family read it. For the same reason, if I knew if there was something in there that was going to upset them or destroy our relationship, I really should consider uh, taking things out or rearranging it. Um, and it was like weeks before publication, before the final draft, after I had already had it proofread, legal team at the publisher had read it, um, multiple readers had, it was pretty much done. And I was satisfied that like, this is the book I'm going to publish. Um and still, my family caught errors, uh, mostly dates, like, no, we didn't live in ha that house when that happened. It was in this house. So I was, like, grateful to get those things corrected. And there was one uh, person who felt like he had said too much in an interview that might hurt his family. And he did. I mean, there's very, very minor things that I took out. Um, in some cases, I decided to change names because it was uh, a bit awkward or I couldn't get uh, an interviewee to approve it. They just, I couldn't find them or get them to review it. So I shifted names. That's it. Somewhere in the book, I say, this is, you know, uh, some names have been changed to protect, you know, people who contributed. But overall, everyone was super supportive. The feedback I got helped make a better book. But still, but still, it is weird. It is weird that um, I know that there's people in my family who are uneasy about this book being out there and, I don't, I think there's folks in my family who've never read it, um, like my grandparents, that kind of thing. And that's fine. Um, and now that I'm working on another book, there's things I'm going to do differently. Um, I'm going to have people vet some of the interviews b beforehand. Um, this one, I kind of was like, blah, it's my art. It's my memoir. Deal with it. This time I, I realized that like, I have to be a little more careful about how, because people don't like the way they look in when you write about them, even if you make them look amazing or you say exactly what they said, they're still going to feel like, you know, they're feel, they feel used and they are, they have become material in your memoir. <laughs> they have actually been, you know, uh, reduced and simplified to the one thing they said, often the one thing they said that was racist or the one thing they said that was, um, you know, cruel. And they're much more complicated than that in reality, but they become in the book a simplified, you know, uh, a lesson that the reader needs to hear. 
Um, nobody's comfortable with that. And in some ways I got to just choose my battles. I don't know. I think with this next book, I'm, I'm being really careful and I'm keeping a running list of people that have to approve it. Um, but at the same time, like, yeah, it's my art. I'm just going to, some things just need to be said and it's not going to make people happy. I might have to change their names. Hey, Hannah, this is Eric. I wanted to chime in a bit here on this because you're just talking about your growth and being a native of Atlanta. I moved to Atlanta in June of 2000. So I've been here just over 20 years now. I think Kendrick's been here 10 or 11, maybe 12 years. So one of the things that I've found interesting about being, well, I call myself a transplanted Southerner. I moved here from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm a native Chicagoan, but I've kind of lived all over the place, grew up in Northern California mostly, and uh, lived on the West Coast for 13 years of my life. But one of the things I've found interesting about living in Atlanta is the city's grown a lot since I've moved here in, in 2000. And I have a handful of friends who are actually from the city of Atlanta that grew up here, spent their whole life here. So my question to you is about, you talked about your life and kind of the evolution of, of your life and the things you've gone through. What's it been like to be a resident of the city of Atlanta um, and to watch it grow at the pace it's grown? I'm, I'm looking at some numbers right now and it said in 1980, the metro population was around 1.6 million. And right now it's estimated to be 5.8 million. What's, what's that been like for you as a native of this city to just see this explosive growth and also for Atlanta to kind of be on the world map as a center of urban culture, music, arts, and entertainment? Well, in some ways, the, whole, the book Flight Path is about that grappling with change and how home is never the same as it was and there's something universal about that. You can never go home again. Literally, my the places where I grew up have been demolished. You know, they've they've changed forever. And I'm specifically talking about that in the book. But there is a more universal sort of, um, you know, coming of age story about like, whoa, home home is so different. What does that mean? Where do I belong? So that's sort of what the book is about. But to answer your question um, beyond that. I've often thought that I should move more. You know, I know so many people in Atlanta that moved here or are or, or, or here for college and then they're going to move around. And I'm like, what's wrong with me that I didn't, you know, I, I actually lived in New York for a few years after college, but a couple of years in New York and I was ready to come back to Atlanta. Part of what makes Atlanta exciting is, is that change, that sense of um, uh, new people coming through, new cultures taking root, um, that it's like, always different. And if you stand in one place in Atlanta, you'll over 10 years, you'll feel like you've lived in three different cities because of that rapid sense of change, the new folks, new faces, uh, new buildings. Um, so part of me loves it. I think it's really exciting to see Atlanta grow more diverse, um, to grow more dense, to evolve from sort of a sleepy Southern town into a global metropolis. Um, I'm a city girl, so the more urban Atlanta gets, you know, the more I love it. The The downside, of course, is feeling disempowered and disoriented by that change, like constantly feeling like, whoa, what happened to that place that I used to go to and love? It's gone. Who bought it? What are they build, building more condos? Um, and part of why I think I got into urban design and planning is trying to understand that what's happening to my city. What drives decline? What drives investment? 
um, who is who are these developers who are behind changing the place that I thought I knew and I thought I owned, and it turns out I have no power and I'm just kind of watching everything happen around me. Um, so any city, I guess, that is experiencing the kind of influx of investment and economic development, change comes with a lot of sense of uh, disorientation and confusion and 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 gentrification. You know, brings a lot of different you know, on one level, you're excited to see your property values going up. On another level, you're like, am I about to be priced out? And what happened to the cafe that I loved so much? And I don't belong here anymore. So mixed feelings as change comes. And I and definitely getting into urban design and planning has given me some vocabulary, some tools to do research and try to understand better what I'm seeing all around me. Um, overall, I'm still here at, because... I appreciate that energy. I appreciate the the sense of change and I want to be part of steering it, making it better for more Atlantans. On that topic, you're involved in, uh, uh, your, I don't know exactly where, what your position at finding the Flint initiative is, but, um, you're pretty involved in it. So can you tell us a, what is it and what, what it's all about and what the mission and goals of finding the Flint is? Yeah, perfect segue. It's totally an example of me trying to be part of the change that I want to see in Atlanta. Uh, okay, so Finding the Flint is a joint project of a couple nonprofits and the Atlanta Regional Commission, or the ARC, which is Metro Atlanta's planning body. Um, the nonprofits are American Rivers and the Conservation Fund. These are two national nonprofits that have offices in, in Atlanta. So those three organizations... Um, Working with the Flint River Keeper downstream and the Aerotropolis Alliance, which is a, a business association kind of around the airport area, they started talking about the need to do something to protect and restore the Flint River. Um, the Flint River begins in the airport area and it flows all the way across the state to the Florida state line. It's Georgia's second longest river. It doesn't have a lot of uh, brand recognition like Chattahoochee River, uh, which is the longest river. Um, but the Flint's really important to Georgia. Um, that's the water supply that, that um, you know, runs our agricultural economy in South Georgia. Um, but the river itself in the Atlanta area is completely unknown. So those three groups were talking about um, the need to kind of like do some restoration work and get people to understand why, why the Flint River is important um, it's had us, we've been in the water wars for a decade. Um, and that water supply challenge is what Atlanta uses from the Flint and the Chattahoochee and how that impacts downstream communities in Florida and Alabama. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, high level reasons why we need to protect the Flint river. It's been running dry during years of drought. Um, all of South Metro Atlanta and South Georgia depends on it for water supply and for agricultural water supply. So, um, I had just published Fight Path in 2017, which is really, there's nothing like it to kind of think critically about the airport. And during the writing of Flight Path, I had read that there were creeks piped under the airport. And to me, that was just symbolic of like, this airport was going to grow on top of whatever got in its way, including a river, including creeks. They were going to, you know, whole cities were sort of demolished for this airport. So I had a kind of perspective and just being from Clayton County and now I live in East Point, um, I got the job basically um, to help 
coordinate uh, this new effort. And I named it Finding the Flint. Originally, they were like, we need a vision for the for the Flint River headwaters in the airport area. And I was you know, like, where is that? And looking at maps and going out on the field and trying to find these creeks, they're not labeled. Um, I mean, there's no, they're not, they weren't labeled on the map. And there's not a sign saying this is the headwaters of Georgia's second longest river. Um, so we called it Finding the Flint because it really felt like a treasure hunt. So I got hired as a coordinator and I, I worked with um, some amazing urban designers like Ryan Gravel and Donnie Delfro. Um, these, uh, this was about in 2016. We developed the vision for Finding the Flint and the vision included several places where the headwaters are kind of flowing through industrial areas or between parking lots or sort of hidden in a neighborhood. And they just look like a creek and nobody knows what it is. And we um, tried to look at places where redevelopment was happening in the airport area and drew ideas and pictures and um, post ideas about what would happen if we treated this like an urban river and created parks, trails, access points where people could experience the Flint River again. And it's not just sort of hidden uh, like a nuisance in the back behind a barbed wire fence. Um, so develop that vision. And for the last couple of years, I've been working with airport area governments and business owners and planning uh, groups to put these projects into reality. So uh, it's mostly uh, parks and trails that we're focused on where the river is kind of crossing Delta's campus, could that be a public green space? Where the river is um, flowing completely unknown through the industrial property south of the airport, could we protect some of that green space and put in uh, bike trails that connect to the communities? And right in College Park where the river first sees daylight, and it's just a tiny stream, could we turn some of these properties into a nature reserve for the city? So those are just three. There's a probably like a dozen of these projects that I've been pushing forward for the last three years. Um, and as coordinator, I really am just like convening um, all of these different stakeholders to talk about the possibilities, to win grants, to do studies, to win grants, to do design work that the cities and the, um, will eventually own and develop on their own. I could go on and on about finding the fun. The most <laughs> exciting part to me is that in, in, um, in Flight Path, I was kind of looking at the past, what happened to the airport area. But Finding the Flint is really about thinking about the future and trying to restitch stuff that was broken apart and degraded as the airport grew. The river is symbolic of that. It's sort of been degraded and hidden and cut off, but it's always going to be there. You know, it's resilient. So restoring it is a way to sort of restore the communities in the airport area. And I want to jump jump back in here. I, as you can see, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, I've got my, my um, shoal bass shirt on. And uh, the shoal bass is native to Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. It's the only place this particular species of bass, black bass, lives in the whole world. And I'm a big fisherman, as you can kind of see. And people that know me know this. And people that watch our podcast are getting to figure it out. Um, so I've been an ab, I've become, this fish has actually become my favorite fish to fish for. And I take my seven year old son, who's also in second grade doing homeschool. So I can relate to some of those frustrations. Um, we, we chase these fish a lot, um, mostly in the Chattahoochee and I know about the Flint. I haven't fished on the Flint yet, but when Kendrick first told me about you, it was about a year ago and started getting into this finding the Flint project. It's incredible. Um, 
you know, the, this river and this, this fish is, that's the, the, the number one place this fish lives in the world. And people will come literally from all over the world. And, and ironically, right, they'll fly into the airport, which is the busiest airport in the world, which literally sits on top of the headwaters of this river where this fish lives. It's this really interesting scenario here. But I'm of the mindset that the more that we can um, promote Georgia uh, ecotourism and people coming here to experience all the wonderful things, like I said, I moved here in June of 2000. And I never thought I'd live in Georgia, but I love living in Georgia. And I'm looking out my window in front of me and all I see is trees and they're green. And we've got a creek in my yard that actually it's the upper tributary of um the North Fork of Peachtree Creek, which runs into the Chattahoochee, which runs all the way into the Gulf of Mexico. So I have water going through my yard right now that it will end up eventually in the Gulf of Mexico, which is, is crazy, right? But it's awesome. How do how do we, me and you and other people in the state of Georgia, leverage these resources, not only for, for just community benefit and environmental conservation, but also for economic benefit of our state of of bike shops, of fishing guides, of local recreational uh, tackle retailers, independent retailers, and, and also just, you know, tourism dollars to our state. How does that all, how can we all work together to leverage that for everyone's benefit? Well, that's a big question. I, I love that you know where your creek flows. <laughs> you know, everybody in Georgia, I mean, everybody anywhere lives in a watershed. And if you live in Georgia, you probably have a local creek that is within walking distance. That's just how water rich the Atlanta, you know, the Piedmont region is. There's a creek in every corner. And what's funny about where I live in East Point is that we're right at this high point where the railroads were founded, which means that we're on the boundary of different watersheds. One creek is going to the South River to the Atlantic. The creek over here is going to the Chattahoochee to the Gulf. And a little further south, a creek is actually the headwaters of the Flint River. Totally different river systems. That's very unusual. I mean, if you look at a watershed map of the entire nation, Georgia, it's just got like 20-something different major river watersheds. It's really unique to Georgia, and it's a differentiator, and it should be leveraged to like for tourism and economic development. Um, a big part of why we're doing Finding the Flint is to bring that recognition to um, local communities in Atlanta who don't think of themselves as being part of any kind of, they're not connected to nature, um, not connected to a watershed. So, you know, part of it is education, you know, kids should grow up knowing what their watershed address is. Like, because everything we're doing here in Atlanta is affecting downstream communities, uh, both both um, human and non-human <laughs> communities. Um, but then that, you know, it's not just, learning about it in a book, it's getting out and experiencing it. And unfortunately, if you're inside the perimeter, you can hardly get to a creek. And if you can't get to the creek, you probably shouldn't touch the water. Because frankly, it's catching runoff every time, you know, all this urban runoff, it's it's not safe. You really don't want to touch that water. So um, the river keepers, uh, Chattahoochee River Keeper, Altamaha Riverkeeper, which would represent the east side of Atlanta. If you're in the east side of Atlanta, your water's flowing to the Altamaha. And then the Flint Riverkeeper are all amazing nonprofit organizations that if you care about water, you should support these nonprofits, like both by donating and keeping up with the work that they do. If you have a concern about your local creek, if you want to organize a cleanup, or if you just want to know what it is, like what is the name of this random 
ditch in my neighborhood that eventually becomes part of a river system. Um, the river keeper is kind of the, the, the organization that probably is already doing work around that probably already knows about that sewer spill in your Atlanta neighborhood and they're tracking it. So literally if you, if you're science minded and you want to be part of, um, a citizen science community, uh, crowdsourcing information, you could become part of a team that goes out, samples water or reports on, you know, dumping. Uh, I've, just this week, I've been getting involved with this company called Literati. It's an app where you go out when you see litter and collect litter, you tag it and you include information about where you found it and what it is. Uh, so if it's, uh, you know, tires that are dumped or Coke bottles, all of this information, this data is going to be collected and it's being used to like drive policy around plastic waste and, you know, how tires are recycled. Um, apps make it easy to also track flooding, to um, report uh, smelly water, which is indicates there's been some kind of sewer spill. So like if you have concerns about your local creek, there's a lot of ways to like uh, get involved in, you know, cleaning it up. And some of those are as simple as getting apps on your phone. Um, but general awareness, like following the Riverkeeper on Facebook, it's going to open up a whole world to you about, oh, there's, we're all connected, you know, by these creeks across Georgia. Now, as far as supporting um, tourism, a, a really cool thing is just in the past couple of years, uh, the GOSA, have you heard of this, the Georgia Outdoor Stewardship Act, a new mm -hmm. law was passed so that when you buy outdoor gear, in Georgia, there's a tiny little tax that goes to um, this fund that's a statewide fund for developing new parks and trails. And basically you're helping fund um, the, the places that we wanna preserve. So buy local and um, buy in Georgia, just everything you're getting on Amazon isn't necessarily supporting the state's park. So there really is like a connection between how and where you purchase and how that preserve those dollars end up contributing to preservation. Real um, quick, I know, oh, I know we want to, yeah. we want to try to be respectful of your time and we're, we're getting, we're getting there. Um, and I don't want to cut you off, but I do want to ask your thoughts on the fact that the other part, I think that's really interesting about the Flint and certain parts of the Chattahoochee and these creeks is they run through urban areas and some underserved communities that are non-white communities, right? That are people of color, that are black people, that are brown people. And I, again, being a, an avid outdoorsman and outdoor conservationist, and also being a, a marketing professional and being heavily involved in the media and social media, there's a lot of sentiment out there that the outdoors isn't necessarily the most welcome place for people of color. So how how do we as outdoor conservation-minded people and and scientists, media professionals, communicators, how do we help welcome people of color into this discussion and into this effort to conserve these wild places in your opinion? Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of just very practical and tactical things you can do are um, diversify your social media feed. You know, half the people that you follow on Instagram uh, can be naturalists or outdoors folks uh, of color. There's a lot of amazing accounts that you can follow that are Folks are all about visibility in the outdoors for people of color. Um, that's just a really simple thing you can do on uh, your Facebook feed or social media feed and then help promote the message that, you know, yes, there are people out in the woods and on the trails and in kayaks that are not white. Um, second, very basic thing is uh, next time you go paddling or fishing, take somebody with you who's not white. 
Um, I do that with finding the Flint. Well, before the pandemic, I planned paddling trips and lots of uh, tours of the headwaters that are not, you don't get in the water, but we drive around. And I've been very intentional about making sure that the folks who get out there and discover and find the Flint um, are not necessarily white folks. Um, you're right that in Atlanta, there is a color line uh, south of I-20, and that has been historically where we dumped the sewage into the Chattahoochee River. So it's no wonder that, you know, folks south of that color line, the African-American community, the west side of Atlanta, they learned early to avoid the river. It's not a safe place. It's not a welcoming place. And for decades, it was literally toxic. Um, that's changed thanks to the hard work of the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper. And that's kind of where we're at with the Flint and the South River. Those watersheds are still dealing with a lot of nasty pollution. And it's not safe for uh, residents of Clayton County to get out and, and enjoy the, the flash flooding you know, sewage that can be the Flint River. Same with the South River. Um, a lot of the efforts that these like South side organizations are engaged in is like, um, it's, it's not, and I'm white obviously, and I live in this area, but you know, our partners in Clayton County are not white and they're the ones who are actually advocating to their community members for like, let's, um, let's force our upstream neighbors, including the airport to do better about what they dump and what they allow to run off because this is our river too. Um, all these things have to happen at once. It's really complicated. And you have to talk about these tough issues about race and historical environmental racism right up front. Um, because if you don't, if you pretend like this is just a story of like, let's all get out and enjoy the outdoors, you're missing a long history of uh, the threat that was posed to people of color. And you're also um, part of the problem of gentrification. Because ultimately, like, we'll clean up the Flint River, it'll be an attractive place to live again. And we will have ushered in uh, a new era of displacement. So have, just being blunt right up front to talk about how, like, when you look around at the, the you know, at Orvis or if you look around at, um, you know, when you're out paddling and it's all white, to just talk about that and be talk about um, what you can do to invite, personally invite. And then from an organizational level, your board should not be all white. You know, your leadership should not be all white if, if that's important to you to have diversity in the outdoors. It comes from the top. That's a very long conversation we could get into. And it's something that I think about a lot and struggle with, but I appreciate you bringing it up because it's like talking about it is also the first step. Absolutely. And it's something that we do, we, we try to do here into the current. So I, I appreciate your insight there. Thank you very much. Hannah, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, what are you, two, two last questions, and they're both kind of wrap-up questions. What are you working on now, or what's next for you, and, and what can people expect from, from Hannah Palmer in the future? Well, um, I'm freelance, and a couple projects that I'm working on freelance, Finding the Flint is one of them. So follow findingtheflint.org or um, follow us on Facebook or Instagram, and you'll see how um, – we're working to implement some of these very ambitious ideas about uh, restoring the Flint River in the airport area. So if, particularly if you live on the south side, uh, these would benefit you. But some of these parks and trails are, would really be uh, destinations for anybody across the state. So that's exciting. I'm learning a lot in the process, learning a lot about politics and funding and, and, and getting big projects done. It's one thing to draw a beautiful rendering and say, hey, shouldn't we do this? It's another thing to galvanize public support and big money to get it done. 
So that's an ongoing project. I hope that Finding the Flint will be around for a long time. Um, I also just do other freelance projects for around Atlanta, doing urban design research and writing. I do some teaching. Um, I'm working on another book. I have been working on it for several years. It's, it's another kind of memoir slash investigation about cities. Um, and it's about water. Um, particularly in the last few years, I've been teaching my children how to swim. At this point, they're good swimmers. But when I started the book, they were like five and seven, four and six, and they really didn't know how to swim. And I wasn't sure where they would learn, you know, like how they could learn, where they can learn. I started asking around, asking parents, and it just blew my mind how um, hard it is to find water. In this water-rich state, it is very hard to get in the water. Like, think about it. Like, where do you get in water? As an adult, you kind of stop caring. You're like, yeah, maybe I'll go to the beach once a year or go to my friend's apartment pool once a year. But kids need to get in. If they're going to learn to swim, they have to get in constantly, regularly. They have to play. They have to have freedom. They have to be in water. So the book is sort of a journey of like trying to find water in the South. Um, and of course, you know, you can find lakes, but they're private and there's no access. You can find creeks, but they're polluted. And then, then there's this, the whole question of swimming pools as um, and, the, and the racial politics of public space in the South. Um, we live in East Point, Georgia, where there's not a single public swimming pool. And there's a there's a long and interesting history about why that is. There used to be two pools, the white pool and the colored pool. They both are filled in and erased without a trace. Um, long story there. And of course, it has to do with, you know, the struggles over integration. So the book is... Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm almost done with it. It's it's uh, there's a ton of research that's gone into like what happened to our these lost southern waters, uh, lakes that were drained, pools that were filled, and and what and it's kind of about like how the next generation sort of pays for the bad environmental decisions that their grandparents made and the racist policies of their grandparents. Um, so again, very personal. Uh, there's a lot in there about our family and, you know, you know, personal stuff that you'll just have to read the book to get into about how trying to figure out who we are as a family and what kind of, you know, when you think about like where you swim, how it sort of is part, becomes part of your identity or where you vacation becomes part of your identity. And I'm literally grappling with like, okay, should I just join the Y? Is that what I need to do so my kids can get in the water? Um, they learned how to swim by going to every public pool in Atlanta and every river and creek in Atlanta, <laughs> basically. So there's some there's some joy and fun and discovery in there, but there's also a lot, there's a really dark history. The water in Atlanta and, and most cities, it actually explains a lot about the way our cities are shaped, the way we're segregated, where industrial stuff is, uplands versus lowlands. It's the key to understanding cities, I think. Well, that's fascinating. Stay tuned. Stuff we do, stuff most people don't ever even th ever think about, um, and you bring it to life. I know you'll bring it to life in such a way that makes it easy to easy to understand, easy to to read, and and, and entertaining and story in a storytelling way. So um, I look forward to reading it. I pretty much look forward to reading whatever it is you whatever it is you do. Pretty much, I'm a big fan of yours. Um, so let's just get the details out there where if people want to connect with you, people want to hire you, um, where can they find you? Where can they connect with you? What do you want them to know? Thanks. Well, for Finding the Flint, I mentioned uh, Facebook, Instagram or FindingTheFlint.org. 
if you want to donate to those efforts, um, Finding the Flint is not a nonprofit. It's just a project of American Rivers and the Conservation Fund. Both are phenomenal um, organizations working across the country. And you could donate to American Rivers or the Conservation Fund and just like tag in your donation that Finding the Flint is where you want your money to go. Um, my personal website is hannahspalmer.com, S as in Sam. It's my maiden name, Slagle. Um, hannahspalmer.com um, explains a lot of the work I do. It includes a lot of links and interviews and publications. Um, I do freelance writing, research, editing. I'm also a graphic designer. So a lot of times I'm developing presentations and, and um, books and I'm helping people sort of translate scientific and technical information into a story that compels people to act. So that's the work that most graphic designers and visual um, and storytellers does, um, but I can do it visually and through writing and research. So I work a lot on urban design and planning projects, doing that kind of work for cities and institutions and nonprofits. And a lot of that is on hannahspalmer.com. I'm also on um, kind of reluctantly on social media. Uh, I find I'm on Twitter and um, I can send you links, uh, but it's like Stumptown, Georgia, an old Twitter handle. I'm on Instagram. I do have to say that like, particularly during the pandemic and the lead up to the election, I am really trying to not be on social media so much just for my mental health. Um, but I have to say it's where a lot of my work has come from and great, you know, relationships, professional relationships have come out of social media. So I'm on there. You can find me. <laughs> just might be slow to respond because I'm trying to protect my, my, uh, spirit of optimism. <laughs> yeah, that's important too. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for the time. Give, uh, give our love to your family, um, and say hi to them. And, uh, thanks for, thanks for spending some time with us and our audience and sharing what, what, uh, what's going on. We really yeah, appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Hannah. And thanks for all the work that you're doing to protect our waterways. It's, um, again, not, not being a native of Georgia, but having lived here this long, it's, it's my favorite thing about Georgia. Um, you know, we, we talk about Atlanta as like, we don't have, we're not on the coast, right? It's a big city, but we have so much water here. Fishing opportunities are amazing. And, um, and just the outdoor resources that we have here are so incredible. And I think when people come into our airport and they spend time here, they're really blown away by it. They don't expect it. I didn't expect it when I moved here, but it's really what I love about the state of Georgia. So thank you very much for, for working hard to protect it and to make it better. And, um, and we want to help you out too here. So let us know what we can do to do that, please. It's cool to hear your insight as a, as a transplant. And I enjoyed the talk. It, I, this time flew by for me. I love talking about my work and appreciate the invitation to do that. All right. Well, thank you. All right.